Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If you joined us last time, you already met Paula. So if if for some reason you're just tuning into this one, you're going to want to pause here and go back and listen to part one, because this is the second part of Paula's story. We we left off where she was about to do some, some traveling nursing, and we had followed her story from Romania to Italy, to New Jersey, and we have uh, a little more traveling to do with her and and a lot that goes on in her life story and journey. So as a quick recap, Paula, do you want to give us the, I don't know, the 32nd version of the life that you had from being born in Romania to getting to becoming a traveling nurse, (laughs) and then we'll pick up the story. Sure. So um, I was born in Romania. Uh, came to the U.S. when I was nine, and when I was 30 years old, my job was going nowhere, and some other things had happened, so I decided to become a traveling nurse, with my first assignment being Oregon. So I uh, applied to a bunch of different traveling nurse jobs, and my sister, who's uh, four years younger than me, decided to come with me. You know, she didn't want me having the adventure by myself. And I thought that was great. So I found an agency that was willing to give us a two-bedroom apartment and started applying for jobs and ended up getting a job in the ICU in Newburgh, Oregon. So got to Newburgh and, and ended up being just the best job I've ever had. I went from absolute chaos and, you know, just run like crazy to people going, oh, will you please just sit down and read the paper? You're making us nervous. You know, because I was just like, what do I do now? What do I do now? Um, took me a while to slow down. I ended up just having a lovely job um, exploring Oregon, hiking, just doing different things, uh, which I really, really needed, you know, for my emotional healing. And decided I really, really liked Oregon. And within a few months of my moving there, uh, my parents had been wanting to leave New Jersey and New York pretty much from the time they got there. But once we grew up, they didn't think us kids would leave. Uh, we were starting to get established. Two of my siblings had gotten married in New York. But when I left and Simona and I left and we liked Oregon, they're like, oh, so they sold their house and they moved too and drug along my two youngest sisters that were still in high school, very unwillingly because they were leaving behind their friends. And then uh, one by one, for different reasons, other siblings, um, you know, just it, it just God just kept bringing us there. So eventually we all end up in Oregon. Uh, when I moved there, I was 30 years old and I had decided by this point that all the good guys were taken. So I'd pretty much given up on getting married. And then um, one day in Bible study, this guy sat right in front of me. And so after service ended, you know, he turned around, I shook his hand and he shook my hand. And then he came back the following week. He was working as a at the college in the firefighting department as a, a part-time job. And he showed me pictures. What he would let, do is let little kids come in and put a, a, a little plastic firefighter hat on them, put some smoke bombs in like a, a trailer or something that they were going to burn anyway eventually, and give them a hard garden hose and let them fight the fire. Like it was something he came up with. And uh, their families could take pictures. So he was doing this for kids. And he showed me these pictures. And at this time, Yermila had come. Uh, to Oregon, and she had a, a four-year-old and a three-year-old. I'm like, oh my goodness, they would love this. 
I can't let this guy get away. I'm like, here's my number. Here's my parents' number. Here's my sister's number, you know? And sure enough, we arranged a date for my niece and nephews to go play firefighter. And, and that's are now great. And I have great pictures to this day. And but then he likes like, well, why don't you try out the firefighter gear and, you know, and the hose and, you know, and, and he's getting me to do it. I'm like, I think this guy's interested in me. And I, I wasn't even thinking about that at that point. We started dating. Uh, his name is James, obviously my husband. <laughs> he never really spent time around girls. He had one sister and, and then he had four brothers and his uh, mom died when, when he was young. And, you know, he fixed cars and hunted and fished and, and never really spent any time around women. So our first official date, he told me he was going to marry me. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you don't know me. It's like, no, I'm going to marry you. So anyway, so we, we actually did end up getting married. It took me a little while to come around. And he's a lot of fun. He's just very funny and very outgoing and very loud. And so we, we got married. And about a year into our marriage, I wasn't getting pregnant. I was uh, 32 and 33 at that point. And um, nothing was happening. So we started doing infertility stuff and doing infertility stuff. And after doing infertility stuff for I don't know, a few years, still nothing was working. I, uh, I kept having pain in my side. I thought maybe it was an ovarian cyst because I'd had, you know, I was taking meds. So they said, okay, yeah, we'll go in there. And I said, it's going to be a real quick operation. We'll just go in there and you know, take out the cyst and it should be fast. And I, I got an estimate of when they thought I could get home and they told me, and this is going to be a laparoscopic surgery, no big deal. <laughs> anyway, turns out, turned out like a four-hour procedure at uh, stage three endometriosis, which I had no idea about. Hence my inability to get pregnant. Later on, it looked like my fallopian tubes looked like, you know, curly fries, you know, they're just scar tissue and nothing was really working. So, um, they got everything cleaned up and, and then we did fertility stuff again. And I actually had one miscarriage. I did get pregnant once, uh, possibly more than once, but one documented miscarried. And then um, took a break Then we tried again. And, and then um, eventually got to, I, I had some bad reactions to some medications, like uh, neurological reactions. Like one night I woke up and all the lights in the house were like flickering on and off. And I thought we're having an electrical shortage. I woke up, geez, like James. I think, I think there's some kind of power surge or something. He kept looking and looking and he's like, there's nothing going on. I'm like, no, all the lights are flickering. Well, then I was scared to go, you know, go to sleep and called my doctor the next day. She's like, stop the medicine. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So the next time I went to the doctors, James asked them about some of the side effects and some of them were like stroke and death. And James goes, you know what? I don't have any kids, but I've got a healthy wife. We are done. And we walked out and that was the end of my fertility stuff. We both really, really wanted kids. And, you know, and, and to this day, James, you know, wishes we'd been able to have kids. And I felt really badly for him. You know, he didn't know, you know, I was infertile when he married me. But we ended up living out on a farm on 10 acres out in Yandel County. And I ended up with a bunch of nieces and nephews. And in the summers, we had kids like every weekend. And some of them would actually like just stay for weeks at a time if, if their families lived in town. They would just come to the farm and hang out. And, you know, and so we, we had our share of kids. So we never had kids of our own, but I've got more kids in my life than some people that have kids. So I'm very blessed. What you just described is a journey that a lot of women have been on. And it's pretty amazing the peace that you and James were able to have with how your story carried on. I know there are a lot of couples that, that the grief and the pain is so much that 
it's too hard to have other, other kids, nieces, nephews, friends, other little ones, even around because it's, it's painful. And your story is really kind of taken a, a different turn than that. You've, you've just had such open arms to so many children in your life. And, and it's, I think it really is such a testimony to your, to your marriage because infertility can break a marriage very, very easily. It, it's very threatening to a marriage and going through the loss of a baby um, through a miscarriage. It's taxing on a couple just before kind of carrying on a little bit more to your story or just wondering if there's, if we pause just for a quick moment, if you have any quick words of encouragement for women listening who are maybe they're, they're really looking at the reality that they might not have children that are theirs. So the first thing is, is this was not easy. Jason, I joke around that the reason I have so many nieces and nephews is because when we had all that trouble getting pregnant, I was the oldest. All my younger siblings were like, oh, she's healthy. Had no idea she had endometriosis. Oh, we better have our kids in our in our 20s. And they did. So we kind of joke around that we're the reason for the baby boom in our family. I now have 35 nieces and nephews. But, but it wasn't easy. Um, you know, I remember, you know, going to church and, and churches don't mean to be insensitive, but some of them are you going to church and it's Mother's Day. And they said, oh, we want every mother to come up here and get a rose or whatever. And every mother goes up. So every single married woman in the whole church, except for me, goes up to get a rose. And I remember walking out of that service and telling James next Mother's Day, we're going to be on vacation. We are not. I am not doing that again. You know, so it's 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 hard. But. You know, James had a um, an older couple that he was friends with. They they kind of uh, were kind of like I don't know, like his aunt and uncle kind of, but not they weren't related, and they were never able to have children. And and she, when we we found out we're infertile, she's like, you know, everybody gets something, and it's so true. You know, um, some people can have kids, but they have a bad marriage, or they have health issues, or you know, every nobody gets out of this world unscathed. But yeah, we just decided that we were going to be the best aunt and uncle to, to the kids. And, and, and we'd been a part of his family and my family on both sides. You know, it's not the kids' fault. We couldn't have kids. So so I don't know. I I just think everybody gets something, you know, Mm -hmm. and and you could still, there's uh, still a lot to be thankful for. Truly the, such a blessing that your marriage stayed whole and healthy and strong through that whole journey. And as we're going to find out, there are certainly other tests that came along yeah. Yeah. What, what it was is like, I couldn't, I didn't want to stop the fertility treatments on my own because that meant James was never going to be able to have kids, you know, but he made that choice. So it was, it was the right choice and, and I'm glad he made it, but he had to make it. You know, I, I couldn't just say, nope, not doing this anymore. You know, sorry, tough luck. You're married to somebody infertile to that. So yeah, yeah, that was rough. Mm-hmm. But we end up we end up having a, a great life. We got this fixer farm, and uh, <laughs> it was what we could afford. It, um, right after I had my endometriosis surgery, you know, I was still recovering and not really able to get around. And we, uh, James, took me for a drive in the country just to get me out of the house. We saw these cows on a hillside, and we just parked and we watched them. And it was like, oh, this is so beautiful and peaceful, but we'll never be able to afford to to move out the country. And shortly after that, James got laid off. And I already worked in Newburgh, which was kind of in the country. So we're like, huh, 
wait, you're no longer working. You can get a job anywhere. What if we look for a place out in the country? And we ended up finding a really, really rundown farm. We had no idea how many windows or doors it had because it was there were hoarders and it was so covered with things you couldn't count. We told the inspector not to do a thorough inspection because we knew it was going to fail. Just make sure the foundation and is fine and that's not going to fall down. <laughs> we purchased this place and um, sold our house in town. And, and then um, my brother-in-law, who's a builder, came over. He's like, oh, how long do you think it'll take you to fix this house up and, and clean it up? We're like, oh, you know, a year or two at the most. He goes, hmm, how much do you think it's going to cost? And we gave him a figure. He's like, hmm, well, we lived there 15 years. And I think we finished fixing and cleaning everything around the time we left. It took us about 15 years. But it was it was so much fun and and um and we didn't know what we're doing. We I got out there. The previous owner had left behind chickens, and when the neighbors stopped by, he's like, "Oh, I see, I see you've got some New Hampshire, you know, hens." I said, "Well, I figured out which one's the rooster, and that's as good as it gets." And you could tell he's looking at me like, "Okay, she's gonna make it." <laughs> and we just we just did a lot of you know we kind of did homesteading and and did it all wrong. Then um, uh, James drilled into a live power line putting in fence posts and thank god it went to ground it didn't kill him and then uh this is a pretty amazing story um we would get bottle feeder lambs you know it was like somebody would be getting rid of a sheep and we had so many nieces and nephews we we get you know if they gave us one we'd give it to a kid and let them bottle feed it and they love doing that and then you end up with a really really docile friendly sheep so we had one of these uh lambs and the thing was you know like 150 pounds but it was still a lamb and Jason was working in the garage and he had, um, he had taken the whole front of the tractor off and he was working on the, you know, on the engine of the tractor. And um, he's sitting in a lawn chair. This uh, sheep kept coming in and scattering his tools and all his parts. So we kicked this thing out to come back. We kicked it out. And, and, and this was unusual because the sheep didn't usually want to go in the shop. And uh, finally, James, after he kicked it out, you know, for the umpteenth time, the, the sheep just sat in the doorway and just bad and bad. Finally, Jane's like, what is your problem? So he got up and went to check on it. And just then uh, the front end of the tractor that was behind him, the hydraulics failed. And just when he got up, the whole bucket, everything went through the back of that chair, like silently and like took out the lawn chair. Had that sheep not kept bothering him, the front end of that tractor when the hydraulics failed would have killed him, would have hit him in the back of the head. He wouldn't have known what was happening. So uh, yeah, that sheep saved his life. So we had a lot of different uh, close calls, you know, mostly because we didn't know what we were doing. But, but we had a lot of fun. So we, um, late, late, like 2018, 2019, my whole family was, you know, very settled in Yamhill County, uh, very happy to be there. A lot of things started to happen that made us uh, think that we were going to have to move. and. Um, that story my mom had told me, you know, about when her parents didn't leave Romania kind of stuck with me. And I was like, okay, God, you know, if you're, if you're telling me to move, I'm going to move. I'm going to listen. Right. But, and, and a lot of different things were happening to different family members where we just, just coincidences, but there are no coincidences and, and God, you know, there's really God's in charge of our lives. There are no coincidences. It was just one thing after another, one thing after another would happen. And and as a family, we all started uh, praying a lot. Like, you know, God, you know, what, what do you want us to do? Is, is, this, uh, is this God or is it an echo chamber? Because we're all having the same idea. 
did, did we just get a bad idea and we're all circulating it, you know, and we just kept praying and, and um, more and more stuff kept happening. And, and for, uh, for James and I personally, James was like, I don't care if your family's all decided, like they've got some harebrained idea that they want to move. I love our place. I'm not going. But for about a year or two before the whole family decided to move, I had come to the realization that it didn't matter how well we fixed up our 10 acre farm it was going to be never ending work. It was just never going to end. You know, you're, as soon as you mowed, you know, one lawn, another lawn would grow. As soon as you fixed one fence, the cows would take out another. And I decided that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life just weed whacking, you know, 10 acres of the same weeds over and over and over and over. Even though I love where we lived and I loved, I loved our life there, but I realized long-term that was not going to work. And so we kept praying and praying and we, like as a family, we just kept gathering together and praying and praying, God, you know, is this you? Because it's a big move. And then we're going, and my mom and dad did it with five kids. They didn't speak English. And here we're all speaking English. We all live in America. We're just going to move to another state. Like, you know, this is so hard. So anyway, we start praying about where God would have us move. And and then um, spend the summer 2019 pretty much like driving all over the country. And then eventually um, felt like God was telling us to move to East Tennessee. Things just start falling into place. Several of my family members moved before we did. And finally, in um, summer of 2020, James and I had sold our place. And uh, one of my sisters and her husband were still there. And we're driving cross country together. And um, I started getting a little tired. But I was still working full time. And, you know, we are still managing a 10-acre farm. And <laughs> we are moving. So I figured, you know, I had a right to be tired. We had just gone through Nashville, and I was probably about two, two hours out of Knoxville. I was driving, and all of a sudden, I almost passed out. Literally, everything started going dark. It scared me to death. I was probably going 80 miles an hour. It was rush hour traffic. I couldn't pull over. Uh, there was no way I could safely pull over. And I was just going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, please let me crash. Please let me crash. And somehow, like, an exit came up really shortly. I got off at the exit figured, oh, my goodness, I must be dehydrated. So... So I'm like just drinking and eating and I was really, really shaky and like, wow, that's, that's weird. I've never had anything like this happen before. And, you know, ate and drank for a while, settled down for a while and then try to uh, drive again on back roads. I was still really shaky. I'm like, what in the world is wrong with me? So finally, I just parked at a church. I called my sisters and I didn't even call James because he was driving, towing a trailer. I'm like, what's he going to do? Turn around and like keep me company? You know, he can't drive my car in his trailer. So I called my sisters and I said, can you guys come and get me some? I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I think I may be overtired. I'm just so shaky, you know? So they came and got me and, and thought, that's kind of weird, you know? <laughs> and we moved in with my sister and her husband. And uh, initially, we we're going to live in their basement. And um, the first night, I woke up. I couldn't breathe. I just I could not breathe. I went and sat outside, like an absolute panic, like told my sister the next day, I think you got mold in your basement. So we moved up to the living room. Couldn't breathe up there either gosh, this, this is a really bad cold. I must have COVID, right? COVID is going around. Must be COVID. So essentially I ended up like, I'm a nurse. So I like treated myself. I found an old albuterol inhaler. I, I like, I'm taking, you know, I'm taking everything I could think of. Finally, when I, I actually slept outside on the couch, I'm like, it's gotta be your house. I was fine before I got here. This has gotta be your house. I slept on the back porch. It wasn't any better. Finally had my, I, I got to where I just like, I couldn't I barely talk. I couldn't breathe. Had my husband drive me to ER, went to the ER and <laughs> they said, oh, you've got bronchitis and you must be have very high anxiety. 
And they're like, no, there's something really wrong with me. Oh, you're just anxious. There's nothing. You probably just caught COVID. You're probably over it. The worst is probably over. Relax, go home. You know, at this point, this had been going on for several weeks, you know, go home. You're probably fine. But I just kept getting sicker. But one day when I was feeling a little better, we went and looked at a house. We liked it and put an offer on this house. Still thinking, you know, I had bronchitis or COVID or something, you know. About a week after that first ER admission, my, my family started getting really concerned about me. I wasn't eating, but I just couldn't eat. And uh, they said, and, and I, was, I was still convinced. I looked up every mold symptom there is, and I had every one of them, you know. Uh, I was convinced that my sister's brand new house, they just purchased it, must have, be mold infested. So James and my sisters bundled me up and took me to another sister's house. By this point, I couldn't even sit up in the car. I had laid back, down in the back seat, you know. Get to this other sister's house, and, and they were actually starting to be afraid I was going to die because I couldn't stand up. And, but I was not going back to ER because they told me I have anxiety. <laughs> then they decided to force me to eat. They're like, look, we know you don't want to eat. And you keep saying like you have an upset stomach or whatever. We don't care. You're going to die if you don't eat. You're going to eat. So I ate and I threw up and I threw up. I threw up blood. And I'll go, oh, figured out what have, what's wrong with you. Yeah, I've got an ulcer. Okay, I know what this is. So I made them um, put all the blood clots in a Ziploc bag. Sorry if that's too graphic. Because I was like, I am going to get treated this time. Well, I walked, you know, I got wheeled in, pale as a ghost, with a bag full of blood clots, with my heart rate going 160. And they're like, oh, okay, you have an ulcer. So I got a blood transfusion and they admitted me. And then the doc, the GI doctor came in and she let me have IV fluids and, you know, let me drink. And um, the next day they did the scope and she told my husband, yep, she's got a good size ulcer. And we're like, oh, well, thank God. Now we know what's wrong with me. Thank God. Okay, we're good. We're good. Well, I know how to handle this. They, they cauterized everything. You know, they went in there and made sure they stopped the bleeding, you know. And meanwhile, James, um, initially, like when we got to Tennessee, the beginning of August, he was just going to turn around and go right back to Oregon. But I kept getting sick and sicker and sicker. So he, he uh, kept postponing leaving. So finally, he's like, I'm like, well, I got to go back with you because I'm insured in Oregon. I'm not insured in Tennessee. So I better go back to my primary care doctor. So uh, I figured uh, I had enough blood in me at this point to make it into the rest areas because I was really concerned I could get in the car, but I wasn't sure how I would make it to get in the rest areas and go to the bathroom, you know. So after this transfusion, I could, um, I could do that. It's off we went to Oregon. And boy, that ulcer was hurting after this. It didn't hurt before I threw up, but after they cauterized it, it sure hurt a lot. And um, we're in Idaho and, and I was in so much pain. I, I couldn't sleep. And so meanwhile, the, the uh, gastroenterologist from Tennessee had been calling me nonstop. We need to come in for a follow-up appointment. I'm like, I'm sorry, I've left the state. Finally, they're like, can we do a phone interview? And I'm like, sure, sure, why not? So we're in Idaho and, and we parked in like a grocery store parking lot and she gets on the phone and she goes, you don't have an ulcer, you have cancer. And I was like, what in the world? You know, I had stomach cancer and I had not lost any weight up until I um, almost passed out. I had had no symptoms. I'd been a little tired, but honestly, even being a little tired, I probably had more energy than most people because I was always really high energy. And I was just, I was so shocked. Uh, I start crying and she's like, listen, you're young, you're healthy. Uh, you could survive this. Just, you need to start treatment right away. You can survive this. And oh my goodness. So then uh, she told me what kind I had and I Googled it. And 
and basically uh, it's it's pretty fatal. <laughs> Most people don't survive this. And I, I'm googling, and the more I googled, the more the more upset I got. And and I and I still wasn't eating, by the way. I just I just couldn't eat. Come to find out, I found out why later. But so anyway, so uh, James banned me off the phone. He's like, "You are not allowed to look up anything. You do not know what stage you are. You're getting yourself worked up. We're gonna wait till we see a doctor, and you're not gonna look up anything else." Because I'm like, the survival rate's five percent of your stage four. Oh my gosh. You know, and like, he's like, you don't know if you're stage four. You can't look that up. I'm like, okay. And uh, got back to Oregon and we ended up staying with friends. We didn't have a house. Went to see my primary care physician. Ended up in the ER once because I was having so much pain. And thankfully they gave me oxycodone because I needed it. But then it took about three weeks before I could see an oncologist. My primary care doctor ordered a PET scan. And um, the oncologist said, well, we think you're stage two or stage three. And you need to get chemo surgery and then chemo again. I said, okay. And I asked him some questions and, and I asked him, you know, why do you think I got this? And he goes, um, it's probably just your bleeping luck, you know? And he looked like he was really overworked and harassed. He kept getting interrupted by phone calls, you know, and I left there not feeling very reassured, you know, but at least glad I had an oncologist. I'll bet most listeners right now are like me and just thinking, oh my gosh, what a response from a doctor. Because truly, if any of us get diagnosed with anything, that's probably one of our very first questions. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Then we might think of, okay, what do I do about it? How do I fix it? What are my options? But there's always that question, why? Why me? What did, did I do something wrong? Was it, was I exposed to something? Is this hereditary? And at least at this point in your story, you clearly did not get any good answer. Did you ever, I wanted to just sort of, sort of jump ahead and then we'll come back and give listeners the rest of the story of what treatment you went through and how your life is going now. But let's sort of jump to the end real quick and tell listeners, did you ever find out what caused this? I did. It, it was a few months later they did genetic testing on me because I was really worried. There's actually a genetic type of stomach cancer that's highly uh, fatal. And if people have that, you know, I have a lot of nieces and nephews and I was worried about that. So genetically, I don't have any cancers. They've tested me for just about every cancer gene out there. But it turns out, having been born in Romania, I picked up a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori or H. pylori. It's very common in third world countries. And being a nurse, I was aware of this, but I didn't realize it was so common that I had it. I had no symptoms until I developed cancer. Once I was diagnosed with H. pylori, my family got tested. Most of them had it also. They all got treated. And I've kind of made it a mission of mine to, anytime I meet somebody born in a third world country or has spent any significant amount of time, in a thorough country, I ask them if they've been checked for H. pylori, and a few say yes, but most of them haven't because it's not common in the U.S., and they don't check. It's a bacteria that can live in your stomach for decades and not cause problems. Well, probably right there, a lot of listeners are going, oh my gosh, should I get checked? If somebody did want to go get checked, would they just call their doctor? Would they need to go to a specialist? Could they just, is it a blood test? If they call their doctor, some doctors are not comfortable checking for it. They'll they might refer people to a gastroenterologist. Um, my PCP was the one that actually checked for it. Not the oncologist, but the primary care physician was like, 
you know, this is really strange. Let me check. And like, oh my goodness, <laughs> we found out the cause of cancer. Yay. Because I have no risk factors. I had absolutely no risk factors. It just kind of came out of left field. I'm so sorry that this one oncologist really didn't give you an answer, let alone bedside manner, but but we know your story takes a turn. I mean, you're you're here talking with us today. So pick up the story. Now we're going to kind of go back to where we left off. You, you just found out that you had cancer at this point. You have no idea why you're in kind of two different States at the same time. So what treatment did you have to go through? What surgery did you have to go through? And then maybe we can kind of end with how was your health and what are you doing today? So after meeting with that oncologist, I ended up meeting a surgeon getting a port placed. I was still insured in Oregon. I still had a job there and I was getting disability. But there were so many red flags, like a lot of little things came up. And after one doctor visit, we're driving back to our friend's house because we're staying with our friends. And I started, I was just bawling and crying. And, and I called up my sisters and I said, how fast can you guys get me to Tennessee? They're going to kill me. They just were not communicating. And there was just a lot of issues. And that was the end of September. I had surgery on a Thursday and again on a Friday. I recovered over the weekend. I was here by the following week and had insurance and a doctor by that, by the next Friday, like within less than a week. It was, it was just a God thing. They got me insurance. I gave them a power of attorney because I was going to be knocked out for two days in a row and I couldn't make any decisions. So my sisters got me insurance, got me doctor's appointments, everything. So I ended up going through four rounds of a chemo called uh, FLOT, F-L-O-T. I would get three different chemos at a time that went over over several months. And oh my goodness, I'm sure just about everybody's probably has somebody that went through chemo and it's, it's rough. I got through it, thank God. And then they scheduled my stomach removal. I ended up getting that done at Vanderbilt. It's not a common procedure. Not a lot of surgeons have experience with that. So I, I ended up getting that done in Nashville. And another God thing, it was during COVID and I wasn't supposed to be allowed visitors. They would allow one visitor. Turned out I was like a full-time care. I I couldn't reach my chapstick. I couldn't pull myself up in bed. It's a major surgery. And so James would stay with me during the day. And then my sister would stay with me during the night, 12-hour shifts. And they did everything for me. The nurses would just come in and they would go, here's the vital signs. Here's what she did, everything. The nurses just literally would just give me medication and record everything. So I I recovered pretty well, probably because I had somebody with me. I was in the hospital eight days, which was the minimum they would give me. And I went home with a feeding tube. Uh, Once I recovered enough from that, I went back on chemo um, four more rounds. I ended up um, keeping that feeding tube in for a total of six months. I, I really just couldn't eat at first. It's, it's a very, you know, your anatomy changes and your body doesn't like it. But I had the feeding tube removed a year ago and my weight stabilized. And uh, I, I don't weigh much less. I'm about four pounds less than I was before I got sick. So I'm actually still wearing all the same clothes. <laughs> I didn't have to do any shopping or anything. Uh, and I can wear my clothes now that that feeding tube's out. It was right at the waistline and I couldn't wear anything for like six months. I dressed like a bag lady, you know, because everything hurts if you put pressure on it, including a seatbelt. James actually took a year off work because I, I was just so sick. Um, you know, that feeding tube would clog up, up constantly. I would throw up nonstop. So, you know, between the move and everything, he took about a year off. 
but he's back at work. So thank God for that. And, and I'm not. <laughs> so uh, as of this week, I have been off chemo for a year and I'm still cancer free. There's a 40 to 50% chance that they got it all. And then I could be you know, completely cured if it doesn't come back. So Lord willing, the, the risk goes down the further out I go. So right now I'm cancer free. I'm still having issues uh, from chemo, you know, fatigue and neuropathy and stuff, but I'm extremely healthy. Like people think I'm an athlete uh, because I'll, I'll give you a little history of living with our stomach. So I can only very, very small amounts at a time. Like if I drink something, I can take uh, three drinks, like three swallows of whatever liquid I'm drinking. And then I have to wait for it to go down. Otherwise it gives me cramps. So I'll, uh, I can eat about half a cup of food and then I have to wait for it to go down. So I've um, come up with a, a shake that I make that's like a thousand calories. And that allows me to leave the house or do yard work or do something. Cause otherwise I'm just going to sit and eat and eat and eat and eat. And I know that like some people are probably like, Oh, that's my dream and not gain weight. <laughs> but but it's, it gets really annoying when you have to eat nonstop, like from the minute you wake up and I do struggle with get, uh, staying hydrated. It's really hot in the summers here. And if I go outside, like yesterday, we went out after church and sat out on a patio with some friends of ours for a few hours. And even though I was drinking the whole time, I still got dehydrated because I can't drink fast enough. So it's a different way to live for sure. But at the same time, you know, everybody's got something, right? Like, you know, there's people out there that are type one diabetics. So this is just my issue. And it's, and it's an invisible issue. Like, um, you know, nobody can tell there's anything wrong with me. And especially if somebody just spends a few hours with me, I can fake it really good. If they spent enough time with me, then things kind of fall apart. <laughs> you know, first of all, and most importantly, praise God that you are cancer free. It is, I, I know for all of us that know you and have been following your journey and praying for you, it's, it's, it's been a long road, a lot longer than, you know, you can fit into a podcast episode on a more logistical note. I know so many people have this question of, how, how do you actually digest food if you don't have a stomach? Like, how does that work in your anatomy? So what they did is they connected my esophagus to my small intestines. Uh, they made a tiny little pouch. They cut away part of my small intestines to kind of make like a pink tail so I don't get bile uh, coming back up. Otherwise, I'd have bile issues. So the stomach's mostly, honestly, a storage container, and it does absorb some nutrients. So I take B12 sublingually. I'm taking uh, bariatric vitamins, like a heavy, heavy-duty dose bariatric vitamin uh, with iron, and I'm taking calcium because those things don't absorb well. But overall, your stomach's really a holding tank, and like kind of it mixes things up. And then it slowly dumps things into small intestines just a tiny bit at a time. So I'm lacking my holding tank. So now I have to eat a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit. I have to be really careful. You know, if I don't chew my food well, then that becomes a problem. But yeah, you can live without a stomach. And there's even people that get it removed preemptively when they have that uh, cancer gene. You know, there's not that many people. I don't know that there's that many people without stomachs around. <laughs> even though I met a few. Yeah, no kidding. I think for a lot of us, you were the first person we had really heard of, we'd maybe heard about stomach cancer, but I don't think anybody really ever thought about somebody having their stomach actually taken out. And, and then how do you go about your life after that? So it's, it's, it's really interesting. And it's, 
I mean, again, praise God that we have this modern medicine that can allow for some of this and that we still have you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, God's been, God's been very, very faithful. There's been so many twists and turns in my journey and it hasn't been straightforward and it's been really, really long, but God's been really, really faithful and he's gotten me through and boy, I've learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a perfect point to kind of wrap up with, uh, before we have you pray for the listeners, you just said that you've, you've learned a lot and I know we could probably record a whole other episode of all the things you've learned, but if, if you could give us the cliff notes version, maybe a minute of in all of your journey and all of your story that you've shared in this two-part episode, what, what has God taught you? You know, as Christians, we're always told, you know, surrender to God, surrender your life to God. And then things go really wrong in your life. And you have to choose to surrender at that point, whether you like what's happening to you or not. And then you just see God's hand. Even now, like, you know, still get scared about things. Oh my goodness, what if this happens? What if, you know, what if it comes back? What, and, and I may be facing surgery again because I'm having some issues from the original surgery. You know, how's that going to work? And then I'm like, wait, God got me this far. I've seen his faithfulness. It's okay. So I'd rather live with the issues I have then, you know, in their physical issues, then live like in fear, you know, like the worst thing, one of the worst things that could have happened to me has happened to me. You know, it's kind of like a, if this kid comes back, it's a death sentence and you know what? It's okay. Cause God's in charge. And ultimately we're, you know, I'm going to go to heaven and I still don't want to die. You know, it'll be really hard for James to get another wife. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, he's, he's taught me how, uh, how to trust and take it one day at a time. And God knows the desires of my heart. And I don't have to worry about making like plans really beyond today. And that's the perfect point to end on. Listeners, I hope that resonates with you. God's got you. He loves you. He cares about you. He knows every day of your life already. And you really can surrender to him because you can trust him. And there's nobody better to be in charge of your life than the one who created it. So Paula, thank you so much for sharing this journey that you've been on. And in closing, would you pray for all of the ladies who have been listening, particularly those who might really resonate with your story? Dear Lord, we live in a fallen world and every one of us is going to have some issues at some point. God, I pray for people that have fear, that are afraid for their health. I pray that they learn to trust you I pray that you can show them your faithfulness no matter what's happening in their lives. I pray that people will choose to surrender to you even when they don't understand why things are happening. And thank you for being faithful to me. And thank you, Lord, that I can look back on uh, the last two years like, like an amazing, amazing journey. And, and I'm still not happy about what I've been through, Lord, but I can see your hand in it. And I don't, I don't have the conclusion yet. I don't see what will come out of it but I'm going to trust you that it, it'll be all right. And Lord, help people that are going through hard times to know that it'll be all right, even if we don't get our way and we don't necessarily get our health and get everything we want, that you'll work it out for good in the end. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you again, Paula, for taking time to do this. And listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope... For those of you who are listening, that you take a moment and just pray for Paula that her cancer is gone forever. And 
we'll be praying for you listeners as well and hope you come back and join us next time for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.